BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. It's the crossover Sports Illustrated's NBA show. Breaking down the latest news, rumors, and everything in between. Here's your host, Chris Mannix, Rohan, Nadkabi, and Chris Herring. Welcome back to another episode of the Crossover Podcast. I'm Rohan Narkini, joined today by not one but two Sports Illustrated senior writers. We, of course, have the New York Times bestselling author, Chris Herring, and my good friend, Chris Mannix. Chris I heard you have a special guest for us on the show today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We do. Uh, Rich Cohen is uh, a noted author, columnist with the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Journal. He has a new book out called When the Game Was War, which is a deep dive into the 1987-88 season. and It's a season that Rich believes was the greatest season in NBA history. Uh, It was a year where there were some 29, I think, basketball Hall of Famers. You had great rivalries between the Pistons and the Bulls, the Celtics and the Lakers, some up-and-coming stars uh, that season. The three-point shot was was just coming into play. So, um, you know, Rich wrote a whole book on it, and uh, we talked about kind of the making of that book, some of the people that he talked to for that book. It's a great conversation that will come up later in the show. Awesome. So that'll be at the end of the show. Dwayne Wade didn't play that season, so I'm interested to hear your guys' conversation oh and see how you can make the case <laughs> uh, for that season. But uh, definitely yeah. looking forward to that. No, no. Thank you, Chris. 
Um, excited to read that. Book. Are you grow, are yeah. you growing your hair out, Rohan? Is, is that, <laughs> am I seeing? Are you trying to pull the Jimmy Butler off? I, I can't see it through the Zoom. Are you trying oh, to pull it out? Yeah, yeah, it's an it's an in, in between phase right now. That's Working why I'm wearing progress. it. Working so progress. I'm wearing a, wearing a hat today, actually. So okay. you know, it, it takes a couple of days uh, with my mm-hmm. hair. But anyway, guys, uh, let's get to just a couple things that I think have been interesting. Um, since Mannix and I last got together, it's funny, Mannix, we ended our conversation on Monday talking about James Harden moments before, um, we found out he was skipping media day entirely. Um, then there was this whole saga about James Harden has arrived in Colorado to attend practice, which is, I've never seen that. uh, It's certainly relevant it's just i can't recall the last time i've seen this level of reporting for a guy literally just showing up to training camp uh which goes to show kind of how absurd the situation has gotten in philadelphia and again this is something we've talked about back and forth a few times now on the podcast just how should the sixers handle this what do we think james harden is going to do and manix i want to ask you because i think your assumption fairly has been harden is going to show up and work because he's an expiring contract and he kind of has to do it. And now we've seen him already. He's skipped media day. There's, you know, Jared Green reporting that Sixers believe he's going to try to make it as toxic as possible. It's clear that Harden is is not kind of going gently uh, into this training camp. Your thoughts on uh, the start of this situation, I guess. You know, it's interesting. You said that Harden arrived in Colorado. I was told by somebody with a pretty good source that Harden had actually been training in Colorado for the last few weeks. He had been training in Aspen, Colorado for mm. the last few weeks. So I, I think he was already there in Colorado. He had to go out down the road to uh, Fort Collins where the Sixers are holding their training camp. Um, let's start here. I, I don't know what that holdout accomplished. I, I don't know what not going to media day and skipping the first day of training camp actually accomplished. All it accomplished at least all it looks like it accomplished was making his teammates and his coaches and Daryl Morey talk about why he wasn't there. And I think he put his teammates in an uncomfortable position. Uh, you know, maybe they're over it. Maybe they're happier to have him there now, but having to discuss one by one, James Harden, not being there, why he wasn't there, uh, you know, what do they, do they think he should be there? Like all the questions these players were asked on media day that, that couldn't, that, that just wasn't, that wasn't cool. That wasn't a good thing, I think, <laughs> to do to your teammates. As far as the Sixers uh, handling it, I, look, I, I long believed that, and I'll reiterate what I said on Monday, I don't believe that Harden is going to go in there and tank it. I, I just think there's too much on the line for him to go in there and tank it. It's too much risk for Harden to have Daryl Morey say, all right, well, you can stink out the joint. We're still going to keep you on the roster. We might send you home. We might suspend you, but we're still not going to trade you. And I thought it was interesting that... You know, Daryl reiterated on Media Day that you know, they weren't just going to give James Harden away. They were going to ask for a, a player that comes close to commensurate value, or they were going to ask for draft capital they could in turn flip for a player that equals that kind of value. So the messaging from Philadelphia has been the same, and until I see otherwise, I, I'm just uh, I, I'm going to believe that Philadelphia is going to stick to its guns, and James Harden is going to have to to play to the best of his abilities and to be a good teammate uh, all throughout this process. What do you make of it, Herring? And I'm curious, uh, Herring, let me get your thoughts first, and I'll ask my follow-up on this. I 
I just can't remember too many instances where someone looks like they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants as far as what they have planned. I mean, what Chris <laughs> just shared about the the reporting and kind of the, the conversations he's had about the fact that he might have already been there to still show up late is just like, so then what is the point? Um, I, I get that you want to twist Philly's arm into doing something. But these are two of the most stubborn people in the NBA between Daryl Morey and James Harden. Uh, asking for commensurate value when someone is kind of showing his ass in this way, <laughs> no no one's going to give you commensurate value. So you're going to be stuck in this vicious cycle, this loop, for who knows how long. And I, I guess what it still comes back to for me, and this is where, you know, like Chris has said that he he feels like Philly could come out of the East when we've talked about this before, despite this. And I, I think he's right. They could. Like, it's not to say they can't. But why I struggle to see it happening, like, I just don't feel like if I had to guess which team was most set to overcome this sort of stuff, it's not this team. It's not Harden. <laughs> Harden hasn't shown us this when he when he was on good terms with everybody and his team, let alone now. And I, I just kind of feel like if this is a contract year for him, you don't win by doing this and showing that you're going to throw a, a tantrum or a mini tantrum to at least get in camp, you know, by the time training camp is somewhat underway. I don't understand what the end game is here for either side. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it can be without incident, but I, I just watched what happened with Brooklyn last year. I don't think that those sorts of things just happen. Um, so we'll see. But at some point, I imagine he has to give a decent effort um, at some point I would imagine that Philly needs for him to give a decent effort, but I still don't even know if that would result in somebody wanting to give up real assets for someone that is doing this. I, I just, and I'm wondering how, if you guys feel this way on any level, but I've come around to the idea that I just think it might be addition by subtraction at this point, getting rid of Harden. And I know that that's an aggressive statement. He had good numbers last year and was a good player. And even in that Boston series, they, they choked it away. He had a couple huge games and is the reason it went to seven games in the first place. But I just think Milwaukee and Boston have maybe forced their hand a little bit. If the Damian Lillard trade doesn't happen and the Drew Holiday trade doesn't happen, then maybe I'm more on board with this strategy. Hey, no one in the East has gotten better. You guys are, are right up there with those top three teams. You know, just go for it. Try to make it work. Live through this awkwardness. But I think Boston's clearly ahead of them. Milwaukee's clearly ahead of them. And... I don't, I don't, you know, the um, a market like the one that existed for Holiday, I, I don't see coming happening for James Harden because of this reason exactly, because of what happened at the end of his time in Houston, because of what happened at the end of his time in Brooklyn. I, I, I don't think that there's going to be teams, even desperate ones by the deadline, lining to give up multiple picks, multiple assets, especially if, if they don't, A, <laughs> aren't sure if they even want to re-sign him to a the kind of long-term contract he wants to uh, sign in the first place next summer. Um, and as much as Joel Embiid wants to win, and I respect that, I mean, I respect him saying, who said Milwaukee and Boston are ahead of us? That's what I want to hear from my franchise player, my franchise center. And that's the kind of stuff that makes me want to root for Embiid. I love that mentality that he has. But I, I just think Milwaukee and Boston – Making the moves that they've made, I think, allows them to trade Harden. Maury's talked on multiple occasions about how he wants to preserve their cap space next summer. You know, I've seen people talk about the withholding clause, how Philly can kind of deny James Harden going into free agency. 
Manix, you're the first person who pointed this out. I don't think that helps them either. I don't think it helps them to have James Harden on their books for an extra year. So I don't know. I, I just if the Dame and Drew trades didn't happen, maybe I, I'd I'd be more leaning toward Manix by this point. But you've been eclipsed anyway. Why why force your star to to go through this kind of headache for the second time in the last few years? Um. I'm not saying you take a true pennies on the dollar, but if you can get one first round pick and an expiring, I mean, at this point, I just don't know how you're yeah, going to do I don't think they're that. even getting that. I, I don't even think they're, they're getting offered mm, yeah. that at this point. Wow. I mean, I think that's that's the challenge. I would say this, Rowan, like the the whole, like, I, they're not going to get a better offer. Like that, that whole, that mindset, it feels like it's been debunked by what happened with Damian Lillard, right? Like, you know, in early July, Miami was the only game in town. Milwaukee wasn't in it. Toronto wasn't in it. There were no suitors. I think what Philadelphia wants to do in this situation is wait till the season starts and see how some of these teams come out of the gate. See if the Clippers, you know, are playing 500 basketball through the Mm. end of November. See if the Heat are playing sub 500 basketball through the end of November. Right now, you know, the Clippers can say, "All right, we've we've got the the Sixers by the short hairs here, and we've." Uh, you've got a really good team. Paul George is healthy. Kawhi Leonard is healthy. Terrence Mann, we love. Uh, let's see if that holds up, you know, as we get towards Thanksgiving. Same thing with Miami. Like, you know, Jimmy Butler is still saying, we're going to win the championship this year. All right, well, you know, nobody but Jimmy Butler seems to really believe that. And if they do scuffle early on, uh, maybe they'll be motivated to come to the table and offer Kyle Lowry multiple first-round draft picks to get, you know, James Harden off their roster. I, I just think there's too much upside to waiting. Uh, and-, and I think it's... It's it's just way too soon to be able to say that there won't be better offers for James Harden if this season starts to play out. Herring, what do you Even think? For do you him, think it's, it's worth waiting like that. I, I, at a certain point, if you're going to get this far into it, where you're you're at this point running the risk of Harden continuing to kind of show that he is willing to, I guess he hasn't shown that he's willing to blow the whole thing up in your face, but that he's willing to potentially sit out part of, you know, whether it's media day, part of training camp, who knows yet exactly what sort of effort he's showing through this. I guess we'll probably hear more about that over the course of this week. But at a certain point, I think you've gotten this far into it. You probably do need to wait a little bit. It's very clear that teams uh, were content waiting this part out and saying that we don't want to bring him to training camp now, uh, that we don't want to give you anything meaningful for him now. So at a certain point, you probably should wait. I My concern is this. What sort of season would James Harden need to have to convince anybody to want to go long-term with him right now? Uh, and, and, and to this point of what Chris is saying and waiting, uh, sure, we were saying some of these same things about Kyrie Irving last year. So it doesn't mean no one will. Uh, if you get a team that is really, really hamstrung, that they're trying to overcome a mistake that they made a year, two years ago, like Dallas was, maybe you find that perfect team. Maybe Miami ends up being that perfect team in some way, shape, or form. Um, If they make another run this year, and then it's like, okay, we need one more piece, uh, and maybe Harden is that guy. But I just, again, I just kind of feel like if you were to ask Harden, a guy that has done a lot of stuff on his own that uh, relative to other guys of his stature, I think is gone without an, an agent or kind of done a lot of this stuff without an agent. It makes me wonder like what has been the end game here? Again, I just don't exactly know what the aim is. Obviously he wants a big one last big contract, but I don't 
know that this is the way to go about it. I'm not sure what would be better, but it doesn't seem like there are many things that would be worse either uh, in terms of just the way he's thought about throughout the league, which is why there have been so few offers that Philly would even consider, any offers yep. if they've had that they would consider. You know, the irony of the, the Harden situation is that the contending team with the most cap space next summer is Philadelphia. Right, that, that yeah. they're the team that <laughs> right. that could potentially offer him uh, the most money. I, I just think Harden's in, in just a a new situation. Uh, you know, he, he had multiple years left of his contract when he threw that temper tantrum in Houston. He had years left and the benefit of coming off an MVP level season uh, the year mm-hmm. before in Brooklyn. This year, we had a whole body of work. You know, last year to look back on. Uh, with the way that year played out. We played really well. He was an all-star caliber player last year, but again, flamed out when it mattered most in the playoffs and just has this last year in his deal. I, I just think Harden's options are so limited. I, I feel like that that brief holdout, or whatever you want to call it, uh, was his you know his Hail Mary, his last attempt at forcing his way out of town. I, I think he's He's going to have to, you know, start getting used to the fact that Philadelphia has all the leverage here. He doesn't. For the first time in his career, he really has no leverage to uh, get exactly what he wants. One thing that I think is is particularly funny in this situation is that Philly can't even do a thing like they did with Ben Simmons. Oh, that was much different. Philly didn't really ask Ben Simmons to go home. Um, but the new player participation policy means. If Harden's around, he's going to have to play. Um, you know, Philly can't sit him. There can't really be like a, a mutual agreement for both sides to part ways while they figure something out. That's not really an option this year. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see just exactly what kind of effort James Harden brings uh, on the floor. I mean, we saw at the end of Brooklyn, at least. Frankly, it looked like the effort was not there. Houston, he had a couple big games, but the effort was inconsistent at best. So... Uh, with the team with championship aspirations like Philly, and they're forced to play hard, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see just exactly what he's able to contribute on the court, even if it's in his best interest to play better so that he is traded. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, 
sets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Let's move on to maybe kind of the one other thing that's really popped this week. And it's a little silly, but I, I am enjoying it, even though I feel like um, there's a, a little bit of delusion on both sides here. Um, let's talk about the Lakers Nuggets budding war of words. So, <laughs> Michael Malone... I love Michael Malone. He's truly one of my favorite people in the NBA. Um, just you know, thrilled for him that they won this championship. Uh, but multiple times during the playoffs last year, in the wake of the playoffs, like very uh, transparent about kind of his, uh, I don't know if it's a disdain, but kind of amusement at the Lakers' demise. Um, you know, you remember him joking after game one of the conference finals that everyone was talking about the Lakers as if they won the game. Um, it was it at the championship parade. He made a joke about retiring, kind of taking a dig at LeBron. Um, so there was there was definitely some chatter coming from the Nuggets. So the Lakers come into training camp and they say, hey, we heard the chatter from the Nuggets. We had some conversations about it. We're looking forward to the game. And then you have Michael Malone going, I don't know what that's all about. Uh, I have great respect for the Lakers and, and Darvin Ham. Uh, you know, if they, they're mad about anything. That's on them. I think it's a little rich for the Nuggets to be uh, playing yeah. it up now, like, like they had nothing going on here. Yeah, Maddox, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, look, the Nuggets did uh, some grave dancing in the aftermath <laughs> yeah, of that win yeah, yeah. over the Lakers. I mean, there's no the, the, the video's out there. The comments are out there. This isn't reading between the lines or you know sourced reporting. It's out there. You know, and, you know Malone took uh, great pleasure in beating the Lakers. Now, some of that came because people were asking him about the Lakers and, you know, the Lakers were were and always will be kind of a hot topic, but the Nuggets enjoyed that win. There's no doubt about it. And, and I can tell you that the Lakers, how they feel is that the Nuggets got them at a weak point. Uh, you, you can quibble with that, but the Lakers feel like they got them when, you know, LeBron was dealing with a significant foot injury that, you know, needed months to heal. Uh the supporting cast was good, and it was the right mix, but it was still new. It was a group that came together after the trade deadline and only had a couple of months to really develop the chemistry you need to be a championship team. The Lakers just believe they are measurably better this year than they were last year. And there's reason to believe that. I mean, I was at uh, Rob Palenka and Darvin Ham's press conference last week, and you know, talking to them, like they point out that they're – two, three players deep at virtually every position. They point out the health of LeBron James this year, coming in at full strength, uh, which is important for a guy that's going to be 39 years old in a few months. Uh, Anthony Davis, bulked up. D'Angelo Russell, bulked up. 
Uh, Austin Reeves, another year, uh, another year better. I mean, the guy averaged 18 points per game after the All Star break. There's no reason to believe that player isn't going to be the one we see all season long. Lakers just believe they're a better, better team than they were last year, and they're eager to show it. That opening night game, I think, is going to be have a playoff like atmosphere in Denver uh, because the Lakers, I think want to send a message pretty early that this isn't the team from last year. The team you beat last year, I mean, good on you. You won a championship. You're the best team in the NBA right now. But the Lakers firmly believe that they are a better team than the one the Nuggets dispatched last year. And they remember, you know, kind of everything that was said in the aftermath of that win. Herring, it feels like the Nuggets are the, um, I think you should leave. We're all trying to find the guy who did this. In the hot dog costume <laughs> meme, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, come on! Yep. Yeah. Us, uh, are you are you enjoying the back and forth? Because I, I would love a little Nuggets Lakers rivalry. I I would very much enjoy that. I mean, also not to mention that like Milwaukee Boston, which already was a good rivalry, feels like it's going to be alive and well this year after the the Drew Holiday situation. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm never upset when teams dislike each other a little bit or get frustrated with a little with each other a little bit. I think that Denver, Michael Malone in particular, if we're going to be honest, kind of remembers and hears every dig, perceived <laughs> dig ever, yep. uh, brings it up behind closed doors in front of the media, uh, you know, the moment they win a championship, you know, it's like it's what he's drawing from. So you don't get to be like that on the one side to use it as motivation, but then act like, you know, when you say things that people can't hear them, that people are cupping their ears. Uh, so the Lakers have every right to play into that. I think that, um, you know, everybody would say that the Nuggets deserved it last year. They they frankly dominated the postseason um, and they were finally healthy. And, and so on some level, they did what they believed they could do and what they were supposed to do, given all those things that you put into it. Also, the Lakers were a relatively, I won't say a new team, but a lot of their team was new after the break. Um, they coalesced really well, almost made Mannix's, uh, you know, <laughs> prediction come true. A lot closer to it almost. than what a lot of us thought at the time. Very, very <laughs> close. So I, I, I love this, quite frankly. I, I think the Lakers have every right to feel the way they feel about what was said um, and to draw off of that. And I, I think that it will probably make it a, a really fun matchup um, and I, I also think that the Lakers probably did close the gap, if only because the Nuggets lost um, a couple key pieces to their team. The Lakers added a few key pieces, um, and they'll have more continuity from what they had, you know, this time, not this time last year, but going into the playoffs last year. So I'm, I'm all for it. And I, I think that both teams um, are we're going to see the best of what they have to offer opening night, which is pretty cool to say. I think what's ironic, I, I just think what's ironic about Malone uh, using <laughs> perceived slights to to juice up his team is that his star player doesn't need it. His star player doesn't want it. Like his star mm. player doesn't hear any of it. Like Nikola Jokic, I, I love. Like I could watch Nikola Jokic interviews all day long. They're short and they're just yep. always entertaining. Like he was asked on media day, was this the best summer of your your, your career? <laughs> and he's like, no, it was shorter. Like I had to work right. for two and a half extra months. Like this guy, like th there's no. You know, there's no bulletin board in Nikola Jokic's home. He doesn't look at the bulletin board at the Nuggets facility. Like, he just yep. does his thing. Maybe it works for Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray, some of these other guys on the roster. For Nikola Jokic, it just doesn't It doesn't matter. I mean, we're not going to talk too much about Denver, of course, but um, 
you know, look, I think the Lakers are stronger. I think the Nuggets, look, the Nuggets, let's just get this out of the way right now. The Nuggets are the team to beat in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Until somebody proves otherwise, they're the team to beat. The core of that team is back. But to beat the teams that they're going to have to go through in this year's playoffs, you're going to have to see organic improvement because Bruce Brown is a loss. Jeff Green mm-hmm. is a loss. You're going to need Christian Brown to continue the ascent we saw last year. You're going to need Peyton Watson uh, Peyton Watson to play a role on this team this year. They're going to need, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Vlad- Zeke, Michael Kankar. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Kankar's yeah, we, out. He tore his ACL. Uh, uh, on well, FIBA, yeah, yeah go. they're, they're well, going right. so, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, you're going to need, yeah, you're going to need these guys to uh, play a bigger role on this mm-hmm. team. So, like, maybe they will. Like, I think Christian yeah. Brown's a really good player. Um, I don't know much about Peyton Watson, otherwise I saw brief glimpses last season, but maybe he can turn into a player. Uh, but you know, they're they're going to need organic growth to keep up with the arms race in their own conference, much less what's going on in the East. Um. Herring, I do want to ask you about the about the Lakers because they're weirdly flying under the radar. I think the most they ever have since LeBron has gotten there. I like their summer. I mean, I really like the Gabe Vincent pickup. I think Torian Prince, if he's ever going to be like a premier three and D guy, it's going to happen playing next to LeBron and AD. Christian Wood, I mean, that one's gotten a little bit too much masala on it for me. I mean, I'm sure he'll be fine there. but I, I love, can I just say, like, because I'm in L.A. and <laughs> I'll spend a lot of time around these practices, but I, I think I saw the quote from Darwin where it's like, Christian Wood wants to be, you know, I don't know if he said all defensive team, but he wants to be an elite <laughs> defender. I'm like, I'll just settle for average. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah. I'll settle for average. Yeah. <laughs> Um, All defensive teams. Uh, that's really good. Um, Herring, well, what, do you, what do you make of the Lakers' chances? Do you have them in the contender mix uh, as of now? But Mannix mentioned that they have good health going into training camp, which I feel like they always have good health going to training camp. I'm more worried about their health going to the postseason, especially with LeBron now in year 21. So what are your kind of expectations uh, for the Lakers? I mean, so so let's be honest. This thing, there's never any way to know definitively. I mean, it's we're, we're talking about is Anthony Davis healthy? Is LeBron healthy? Which is those two get older. Um, LeBron in particular is, you know, he's going into, you know, what'll be his 39th year on this planet. <laughs> it, like, it just doesn't, you, you're not going to be as healthy as you get down the home stretch most of the time. It's about managing these guys. Um, I do believe in their ability to stay healthy a little bit more when you consider how much depth they have on this roster, that they're not having to be out there and that you should be able to hold your own with this group of guys. Certainly once they kind of gel and get their feet under them, um, you know, Austin Reeves is a guy that the number that he went for was so much lower than what a lot of us were projecting and expecting. Um, I'm still kind of floored that they were able to get him for that. So, I, this is a this is as good a roster as they've had since that title team. Uh, I, I think you can easily say that they kind of spent time trying to recapture what they had with that title team after you let go, go of guys like Caruso, um, you know KCP stuff like that. This is a group that has a lot of balance to it. Uh, so yeah, I feel good about having them. I would say. You know, to start the season, the Nuggets, I think, are the team to beat out in the West. Uh, They should be considered that way until other, you know, until um, something happens. I would put the Lakers right there. I'd probably put them a little bit ahead of a team like the Warriors, uh, particularly when they start the season with uh, with Draymond being a little bit hurt. Nothing serious, seemingly. Um, 
put them there. I, you know, I think the Suns are a team that you have, obviously have to be thinking about as well. Uh, so I, you know, I, I would have them kind of in that next notch right beneath the Nuggets. Um, Manix. So I don't know if it was like you switched to a new kind of hair gel briefly, but clearly you, for some reason you were granted predictive powers to an extent last year, as we all discussed, you coming close on your Lakers prediction. I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't know if the, the spirits have blessed you yet, uh, this season, but you know, do you have, are you, are you feeling anything in your gut uh, about this Lakers team at the moment? Uh, look, I agree with Herring. They're, they're better. Um, health has a lot to do with that. Um, but I think Rob Palenka, who, you know, made mistakes after the Lakers won their championship in 2020 for reasons that still elude me, the Lakers proceeded to win a championship and then dismantle that championship team with Caruso. And, you know, look, I thought Frank Vogel got scapegoated, uh, you know, a couple of years later. Absolutely. Um, they, they made a bunch of mistakes after that. This past offseason, or really you know, going back to January when they made the Hashimura deal and then the trade deadline moves, uh, they have made all the right moves and all the right decisions. And when Rob Palenka saw he had uh, a group that worked, he went out there and made sure that that group was brought back together. And I look at this Lakers roster and I don't see a lot of glaring weaknesses uh, you know D'Angelo Russell is unpredictable that's for sure and he flamed out badly uh, in the conference finals against Denver so he's certainly someone you've got to keep your eye on but uh, you know like I said I think Reeves is going to be better I think Anthony Davis this is like one of the first off seasons in a long time that Anthony Davis has just been able to work on his game Right. Like, you know, previous off seasons, it's like, all right, he's battling this injury or that injury. You had surgery right. here. He was just able to work on his game. Um, you know, you saw the videos on social media all the time of him in the weight room. He's cross training. He's working with Chris Gent. You, know, you see him at media day and he looks bigger. Like he looks like he's, uh, you know, in a good way, not like in an overweight way. He looks bigger in a good way. So I think the Lakers have a lot of things working for them right now. I think. You know, Jared Vanderbilt is is going to take a step forward this year. I love that Hashimura just attached himself to LeBron James this offseason and said, just, you know, show me the way. You know, show me how you work and show me how to get better. Uh, for, a, for a 6'8 guy built like a tank, there's not a lot of better role models than another mm-hmm. 6'8 guy built like a tank like LeBron is. So I, I love that he that he did all that. And look, LeBron, like, yeah, he's going to be 39, but, you know, on one wheel for the second half of the season, the guy averaged 29 points per game. Like, it's ridiculous. He was 38 years old last year, and he averaged 29 points per game. Like, will the production diminish some this year? Probably. Maybe he goes down to 26 or 25. But as long as the Lakers manage his minutes, and that's going to be the key for me, like managing LeBron's minutes, managing the number of games played so he gets the playoffs as close to full strength as possible. I, I have the Lakers right now slotted as the number two team in the West. I, mm-hmm. I know that I know that the uh, Suns certainly, like Chris said, you know they're, they're a wild card. If they come together, they could be the number one team. You know, very mm-hmm. quickly. Memphis, when they get John Morant back, they're going to be really good. The Western Conference is going to be really good all the way around. But right now, Clippers too, of course. Right now, I've got the Lakers uh, because of what I saw at the end of last year when they went sixteen and seven after the All Star break. And they made it to the conference finals. They brought the band back. They added pieces to it. I think right now they are right behind Denver uh, in the Western Conference. 
The one thing I'll add, and I'm very curious to see, is just I think a lot of teams made great moves this summer. I'm just very interested to see when push comes to shove how teams are stopping the Jokic-Murray pick-and-roll in the playoffs, and I'm not sure anyone has um, a great answer yet, but I'm excited to see teams try, uh, certainly. Guys, that is going to do it for our portion of the podcast today. Make sure you stick around for Mannix's interview uh, with Rich Cohen, um, but for us, we'll talk to you guys next week. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, Rich Cohen is a New York Times bestselling author, a columnist with the Wall Street Journal. His latest book is When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season, which is a deep dive into the 87-88 season. It is terrific. It's available in bookstores and online everywhere. And Rich joins me here on the show. So, Rich, I'm always fascinated by the choice of subject matter. What makes an author want to dive into one particular subject. You didn't choose an era necessarily. You chose one specific season out of the 76 that the NBA has played. Why was this season worthy of this kind of investment on your part? Well, I'm from Chicago and I'm a Bulls fan. And But I was always fascinated by the way the kids I grew up with hated Isaiah Thomas. Uh, he was like, 
you if you mentioned him, you had to say a curse after you mentioned him. And I always liked Isaiah Thomas. My father was the basketball coach, and Isaiah Thomas is from Chicago, and I saw him playing a particularly Chicago style basketball. And uh and I watched him play when I was a kid. My dad would take us to see tournaments, see him play when he was in high school. He was small relatively for a basketball player, and he looked like a kid. So I really identified with him. And um, and when I thought of the most exciting game I ever saw, a pro game, when I really became an NBA fan, was in the finals, uh, game six of the 1988 NBA finals, when Isaiah seemed to me like, like he broke his ankle, was gone, came back and scored 25 points in a quarter, and basically did the most incredible athletic thing I'd ever seen. And I went back and started thinking about why it was that that period of time was so intense and why Isaiah was hated. And I realized that that season was like the period of time when all the planets line up in a row because you had four of these great, great dynasties, uh, the Pistons, the Celtics, the Lakers, and the Bulls just starting to be the Bulls, who were all good and all in the playoffs at the same time, all in different stages of rise and fall. The Celtics were getting old, but they were still the Celtics. And the the, the Bulls basically had the team because they had – you know, first year Jordan won the MB, M, MVP. Bulls finally won 50 games. And you had Pippen and Horace Grant were rookies. So it was all there. And I thought, like, the secret to what makes NBA basketball so great is in that season. You, know, you, you mentioned from Chicago. How would you describe the pain of being a Chicago sports fan in the 87-88 season? Well, I wrote a book also called Monsters about the 85 Bears who won the Super Bowl. And the thing is, like, I realized you couldn't understand why the 85 Bears were so great if you didn't understand the Chicago Cubs mm-hmm. and the fact that they had won since 1908. And we all grew up. I'm from the north part, north side, that we're all serious Cubs fans from where I grew up. And uh, I grew up, my father, who's from New York, used to tell me, do not be a Cubs fan. You will have a bad life. Cubs fans will expect losing as the natural state of things. So when the Bears won in 85, it wasn't just that they won. It's that they basically concussed and beat up everybody they played. And uh, Doug Plank had this great line, who was a safety from that team, told me, if we're not going to beat you, we're at least going to beat you up. So it was like a revenge fantasy, like a Quentin Tarantino movie for Bears fans, <laughs> uh, for Chicago fans. And then, But they only won one year, and then the team fell apart, and, they, and it was a big letdown. I mean, it was exciting, but it was all aftermath. So the idea that the Bulls built a dynasty that won six out of eight years, the Cubs hadn't had a dynasty like that really since the late 1800s with the Chicago Cubs, when Chicago, you know, late 1800s. So it was happened in Chicago and it not only changed our lives and let us proudly be Chicago fans I think it changed the city because everybody started to be in a good mood my, my whole childhood everybody was in a bad mood because just remember Harry Carey going on TV, TV and saying as sure as there's little green apples someday the Cubs will win the World Series you know it was like talking about the end of time and the Lions laying down with the lambs like so that it actually happened was life-changing as someone who grew up in Boston, I can relate to that. Uh, certainly, <laughs> you you described uh, in interviews that season as you know Game of Thrones on a hard court. Why? Yeah. Why would you use that description? Well, because you, I thought originally about writing a book about the Bulls, and whenever you write about a team like the Bears, you're writing about one team, and it's like here, you have 
four great teams full of great characters all battling each other. It's like 30 years war, which Game of Thrones is based on. I was watching it again when I was thinking about the book because my son was watching it. And I realized that what was so great about Game of Thrones is you never really knew who the story belonged to. You never really knew who the heroes of the story were. And at the end of that first season, to find out that the real hero of the story is going to be this Queen of Dragons character who's not even center action, is off stage. I felt like that's like this. You got these teams that have all been considered the greatest of all time. The Celtics, who in 85 with Bill Walton and everything, and then the Lakers and the Pistons, who really belong in the discussion, in my opinion. But then the team that's going to be the greatest, in my opinion, are the Bulls, who are going to win those six and eight years. And they're like the minor character. And what you're seeing in, in 87, 88 is almost the world which gave birth to the Bulls, you know. And it was wild because if you go back and I watched all those games, the whole team was there, but they were all on the bench, except for Jordan. Pippen was coming off the bench. Horace Grant was coming off the bench. And Phil Jackson was an assistant coach. They were all there, but they were just a little bit in the background. So to me, what made it like the Game of Thrones was the incredible intensity, the life and deathness of it, and the violence of it. And also the fact that you didn't know who was going to emerge as the ultimate uh, taker of that Iron Throne, as they call it in the show. Spoiler alert, Rich, for people that don't watch Game <laughs> of Thrones. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, I only I only wrecked the first season. I know, I know. Still one of my favorite shows, and the uh, <laughs> the new version as well is uh, is excellent. Um, you zeroed in on specific games in this book. Uh, for you, what was the most influential? Influential game? Yeah, I think the game I write. Well, they were all. I picked them all. See. I feel like a lot of sports gets harder to watch now than it used to be for me because you were so focused on the games. Mm -hmm. And now with the highlights and everything, like I just, I'm a Blackhawks fan. I just looked up Connor Bedard's first goal with the Blackhawks and empty netter. Okay. So whatever, it's not a great shot. You got to think historically, it's going to be important if he winds out to be like Wayne Gretzky or something. Okay. So basically the highlights to me are like inflation and in that the more it's like the more dollars you print, the less each dollar is worth, the more highlights you see, the less each one impacts you. So to me, it came down to the intensity of the games, which had a lot to do with the rivalries between these teams before free agency existed like it does now. So you, these teams were together and these teams grew to hate each other. So I just wanted to break it back down into that, the intensity of the games, four games, and the how each game was like a novel for us watching. And to me, the game that one of the games that really stood out super vivid with a sick mind that I have is what in Chicago they call the fight game. And it's when uh, the, the Bulls played the Pistons, Isaiah Thomas and Michael Jordan were fighting for who was going to have the hearts and minds of Chicago and Rick Mahorn hurled Jordan to the ground and Charles Oakley still on the Bulls stepped in as his role as an enforcer and bouncer fought Mahorn. And then it turned into this thing. I used to say it was like the movie uh, Cannonball Run, that kind of fight, Burt Reynolds. But somebody corrected me and said, actually, it's the movie Hooper I was thinking of. In the movie Hooper, where Bradshaw, uh, Terry Bradshaw fights Burt Reynolds. And that it was one of these fights that covered the whole arena. And the coach of the Bulls, Doug Collins, who had been a great player but was a small guy, ran out and got Rick Mahorn like in a headlock. And Mahorn threw him over the scorer's table. And the Bull and Johnny Kerr, the Bulls announcer, picked him up, dusted him off, and pushed him back out, which is what you do in a Burt Reynolds movie. He got him in another headlock, and he got thrown over the, into the stands. So, And then it was after that game that Jordan went out uh, in the press and said, this team isn't trying to merely foul you. They're trying to hurt you. They're trying to end your career. That Isaiah Thomas became kind of the devil because he said, 
he took a line from the movie Scarface and he owned it. And he said, we're the bad boys. <laughs> and that's where their name comes from on the flight after that game. And to me, I always, being a Jordan fan, I always said, why did Isaiah Thomas become the devil? Because Isaiah Thomas was Michael Jordan's enemy. Michael Jordan became God. And God has an enemy, and that name is the devil. So since then, I, I like like a reappraisal of Isaiah. But uh, to me, that was really the, the regular season game that stood out in every one of the postseason games. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but the Lakers, except for the first round, every playoff round they played went seven games. And everyone seemed like it was in doubt right up until the last quarter of those seven games. Incredible. Just uh, the competitiveness of those games and those playoff series was, was really remarkable. Uh, you know, reading through the book, in a way, the NBA has tried to distance itself from that era, especially when it comes to the physicality, the fighting. They've basically legislated that entirely out of the NBA. But in a way, they want to get back to certain aspects of, particularly the toughness of of guys playing through stuff. You see in today's game, you know, the NBA quite literally instituting rules to get guys to play. You know, whether it's right you know, sixty five games to be eligible for awards. Uh, rules against sitting out on back-to-backs nationally televised game as you wrote not really an issue back then in 87 88 where guys like isaiah with a grotesque ankle injury is playing through it i mean guys guys back then seemed to want to do everything humanly possible to get on the floor yeah well i think you have these rule changes and it has all these unintended consequences so one is obviously the three-point shot existed the first three-point shot was made in larry bird's first game but it existed, it was meant to sort of be late in the game, Hail Mary type thing. And somebody figured out mathematically, you'd be better off taking almost all threes statistically. And it's like gaming the system and figuring out how to win. And that pulled everybody to the outside away from the paint. So you look at the paint, I would say the paint's like this uh, downtown during COVID. Nobody's there, man. When you turn it on, it's very strange for an old time basketball fan. And the other thing is, because free agency has made these players move from team to team, this is just like my opinion, what happens is is these rivalries aren't as intense because they don't play each other as much. And you might don't want to be too nasty to a guy. You might be playing with him next year. And there's so much money at stake that nobody wants to jeopardize getting suspended and, and all that. So and they made the suspension rules much tougher. I mean, I think the fight I talked about, Doug Collins, who ran out on the floor, got suspended for maybe a game. You know, these and a bunch of the guys weren't even suspended at all. They had like $2,500 fine. So uh, basically, when you have a long season, 82 games, and um, and that's and so many teams make the playoffs, then the regular season is devalued and the playoffs start to seem like a tournament. And if you're a normal fan, you wait for the tournament. You watch the NBA finals like you watch the NCAA tournament. You don't watch Gonzaga's regular every regular season game. You wait and you see him in the tournament. And, um, I think that when you have you, the only way to prevent that is to have these rivalries and have the rivalries like the Bulls Pistons was like the Packers Bears. I mean, the Packers Bears game is always going to be intense, even if the Bears are like they are right now, which is terrible. You know, it's always going to be intense. So I, I don't know how you get back to it, but I understand why it's sort of faded away. One way probably would be be harder to make the playoffs than the games would the regular season games would mean more. But I do understand, and especially if you're a kid and you go see your favorite team and you only get to see one game in a year and it's a lot of money and then you get there and the players you want to see are not playing for what seem like minor injuries. But if you think about it, the coach's objection uh, object is to win. 
then it makes the most sense to rest these guys and only play them when they're absolutely necessary and save them for what I call like the NBA double NC NCAA tournament. You interviewed dozens of people for this book, notable people that are part of those teams in the 87, 88 season. When you think back on those interviews, uh, who was the most memorable? Who told you some stuff that, that really blew you away? Jerry Seasting. I don't know if you, oh, you must remember. Oh yeah. I know Jerry. Yeah. yeah. It's just a great interview, great perspective and really funny and basically, uh, and really smart. And so he's a guy who knew Larry Bird going back to high school because I mean, his comment about Larry Bird, but he wasn't even Mr. Basketball in Indiana or anything, you know? So, uh, what's interesting about him is that you discover as you look deep into these seasons, there are guys who people don't remember who kind of seem like the secret ingredient, you know, because you look at it, the, the Celtics were having trouble winning before he arrived and didn't win after he arrived. And you never say he's one of the most important people, but it turns out there's certain guys. And if you've ever you know been involved in sports or been around kids playing sports, you realize that there's certain kids that make everybody happy that make it fun to go to practice, to make it fun to be at the arena. And those guys are super, super important because they kind of take the psychic load off the team and let the team win. And he was one of those guys. And he had great stories about those teams. Another guy I really liked was Sam Vincent, who was interesting because he played with Jordan in high school, in the McDonald's high school game. He knew Jordan growing up. And then he played on the Celtics and the Bulls, both teams, he was, he was in the locker room of both teams, and he was a point guard for the Bulls at the end of the season in 80, 88. And he lived with – when he got traded to Chicago, he had nowhere to live, so he lived with Jordan. And these are the guys that really remember stuff because they're kind of the observers. You sort of find that the people you really want to interview are the guys that nobody remembers because they're the ones who kind of watched and remembered everything. The guys like Michael Jordan have told those stories so many times, they don't even know if they're telling what happened or just telling the story that they told earlier again. I remember one of my first lessons in journalism. I was working as a ball boy for the Celtics back in the mid-1990s. And Jackie McMullen once told me that the 12th man on the team knows just as much as a star on the team. Yeah. Talk to. More, often more. I have a whole thing about the 12th man because the 12th man is you, you automatically think, oh, the 12th man is going to be the worst player on the team. Mm. But that's that's not the case. There wasn't a 12th man for a while. The NBA had no 12th man. They had, and they changed the rule. And the 12th man turns out to be some kind of special oddball who has some special <laughs> function. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Like the 12th man is often the guy who makes everybody want to be at the, in the, at the practice. <laughs> I want to ask you about Jordan. Uh, people immortalize Michael's 6-0 record in the finals, but, you know, oftentimes it's overlooked. The struggles he had to get there, getting, you know, getting beaten the first round three straight years. The 87-88 season was the first year they advanced past the, the, the first round in the Jordan era. Um, you know, was that season, I mean, it was, for, it was Scotty's first season, so it obviously was a turning point because Scotty changed everything for him. But what was it about that season that maybe, you know, put Michael Jordan on a different path, put him on that that next level path? Uh, one is I think that's the year Phil Jackson started to get into his ear. You know, every coach, every kind of team needs a different kind of coach. And the Bulls got Doug Collins because they figured Doug Collins was a superstar player. And he'll understand what Michael's going through. But the problem is he thought like a superstar player, which is give everything to the superstar and keep, as uh, I heard somebody say, an enforcer about the, uh, an enforcer on the Detroit Red Wings, Joey Coaster once said his job was to keep the flies off Stevie. That was Stevie Eiserman. So that was sort of how Doug Collins looked at players. They were role players. And 
Phil Jackson himself had been kind of like, you know, a role player for the Knicks. And he was a, had a had detachment. And he was able to see that what Jordan needs to do is uh, keep himself calm and start distributing the ball because the Pistons' whole strategy was to basically do what my father did in our driveway when he played my brother, which was taunt him until he went insane, you know? So, and that's, and get him, get the Bulls completely out of their game. So that was the beginning. And also a great Larry Bird quote, as they said, Michael Jordan isn't a team player. And he said, well, he doesn't have a team. Mm-hmm. But that year they started to get a team. All these teams, wildly, you discover that Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen came in the same draft, which seems ridiculous, you know? Just like, uh, Dennis Rodman and John Sally came in the same draft. I mean, the basketball, five guys on the floor, a draft like that changes everything. Mm-hmm. And once Horace Grant got glasses so he could see and started making 12, you know, shots from a little bit outside, then the Bulls became this very scary force. And I think the part of the problem that the Bulls had is that it was so competitive and there were so many great teams. Um, Cleveland was a great team who they beat that year. Milwaukee was a great team. The Hawks with Dominique Wilkins was a great team. Uh, Danny Ainge from the Celtics told me that you can tell this was the best era because look at how many teams would have won a title in any other era except in this era because they ran into one of the they ran into the Celtics they ran into the Bulls. So I think what happened is Jordan got older. He started to have teammates to play with, and he started to have a coach who understood not how you win in the regular season but how you win in the playoffs. And that I think that's a big thing too in all sports, which is the way you win in the playoffs is completely different than the way you win in the regular season. I mean, Jordan could score 45 against the Pistons in the regular season. They didn't really, they let him do that, but they turned the screws on him in the postseason, and he would score less than 20 points on some of those games. They shut him down. So basically he had to figure out how to produce and, and score and make other guys score in the postseason. And that was the beginning of that. How were those Danny Ainge conversations? Great, man. Danny Ainge is one of those guys, like, you always get lucky when you get a guy who's, like, becomes, like, a guide to how people think, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I always thought Danny Ainge was so interesting because we all – there was a great quote by Casey Jones where he said, Danny Ainge looks like he's six foot one out there, but he's six foot six. He really – I mean, there was something about Danny Ainge we used to say, like, had the most punchable face in the league. If you weren't a Celtics fan. You hated him because he sort of got under everybody's skin. He was annoying and he had a tendency to hit the big basket and kill you. And then when you actually look at him, you realize, oh, this is probably the greatest, one of the greatest athletes in the history of the United States, but you never realize it. He's the guy who was all, could have been an NFL wide receiver and he was drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays for a while. He hit the first, he was the youngest player to ever hit a home run in the Blue Jays history. And then he winds up, you know, playing for Red Arrow back in the Boston Celtics and arguably the greatest team of all time. So when you're talking to him, you're aware of somebody that knows the game inside out and then as an executive and a, and a coach, too. Yeah, I've got to know Danny a lot uh, over the years. Uh, in, in, a vital part of those those Celtics teams back. Those were some interesting teams. You know, you got them at the 87-88 season was kind of the tail end of of everything. You know, the, the after the three championships, Bird getting a little bit older, but uh Still very much, uh, you know, in that dynasty era, right? Like that, 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 you know, Walton's still around there, Bird, all those guys. I mean, that was an interesting team they had back then. Well, you had the Len Bias, the horrible Len Bias. That's true, yeah. You know, and that ripped the big hole because uh, suddenly, you know, Bird, he's supposed to relieve Bird and everything and, and let everybody sit on the bench a little bit so they could conserve some of their 
mm-hmm. energy. And suddenly you don't have that help coming off the bench, which was especially a problem if you think about it against the Pistons. Because the Pistons, their great strength wasn't their first five teams. It was their second five. So their bench was arguably better than their starters. And their bench was better than most starting five in the NBA. Their bench had Buda Edwards, Vinnie Johnson, Dennis Rodman, and John Sally. That's the bench. So normally, you, the bench would come in for the Pistons would rest, the South Bird would rest, Mikhail would rest. But instead, these guys would come off the bench and take over the game, and Mikhail and Bird and all these guys who were getting older had to come in more earlier than they wanted, play more minutes than they wanted. And if you look at it, the, the that year the Celtics handled the Knicks in the first round, no problem. And then they had a very tough series against the Hawks where Dominique Wilkins and Bird had this incredible display of like high noon, you know, shot for shot down at the end. And by the time they get to the Pistons, they're already tired. And now they got, they're playing two teams against one team, basically. And they just ran out of gas. But they were, it was, I think that season was one of the most offensively productive in the history, in Bird's career, it might've been the most. Mm -hmm. So they were still great. But, you know, it was just this, it's remorseless. It was really remorseless in the NBA, which is there's somebody always coming up, younger team coming up behind you, specifically built for your weaknesses to knock you off. And the self, the reason why this is enlightening to me, because I didn't understand why the Pistons played, they would play, played the way they played. And the reason they played that way is they were built specifically to beat the Celtics because the Celtics had that huge all Hall of Fame forward line of Bird, who was a small guy, Parrish, and McHale. So they basically did what – the Celtics were a rough team too. The Pistons just went into another stratosphere of what they did when no one was watching was unique to the league. Yeah, I mean, I I think back on that Len Bias tragedy and and how that shaped the organization for years to come. And Len Bias – it was supposed to be the next big thing, and he was going to transition the Celtics from that Bird era eventually into something else. I mean, that just that changed the and course of the franchise. People, I think people also underestimate because there's no way to measure it, like what that does psychologically mm-hmm. to your focus. I mean, you takes your mind off basketball. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, know, so it kind of puts a funk over everything, and it puts it makes everybody. It just is a it's a terrible thing, and it's just experience it like a tragedy in a family you're not really the same for a long time after that no question about that well the book is when the game was war the nba's greatest season rich is terrific it's available in bookstores and online everywhere appreciate your time rich great to catch up yeah good luck with your travels Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. 
That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Thank you.